I absolutely love these Worship God conferences. I've uh, been to many of them over the years, uh, mostly with absolutely no responsibilities, just to receive and to be refreshed and to worship God together and to be edified. And uh, what an edifying time this has been for me already and how I have been blessed through you. It's not only an honor for us to be able to host this, I personally have been richly edified. I, our Father in heaven knew that I needed this morning to hear the voices of hundreds of brothers and sisters singing, all will be well. And I can't tell you how much I am ministered to through uh, the praises of God's people. And it is good for my soul, and it is good for us to be together. And I pray that God uh, uses this time in his word to continue the work that he's doing uh, during this conference of ministering to his people. If I could invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 13. I'd like to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's holy and authoritative word. We read it like no other book. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Father, we ask that you would now continue to encourage us with your truth. And we bless you today as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we take refuge in you and we worship you. We look to you as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions. Lord, you sustain us. You strengthen us. You carry us. The eternal God is our dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. And so encourage us and build us up during this time. And use us to encourage others with your word of truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever, I wonder, if you've ever heard or read a teaching on worship that encourages the worshiper to block out uh, everyone else in the room? Uh, I've heard this. And the idea is generally accepted because, I'm afraid, it's reflective of the way that many Christians tend to think about the experience of musical worship. So the other day, I read this. When you feel like people are watching you, or maybe overhearing you, it can be difficult to worship freely. Going to church and worshiping together with other believers might feel very awkward for the first time. If you keep looking around, you will never be able to be completely real with the Lord. Learn to get absorbed with Jesus and block out everyone else. And then the author strongly recommends uh, closing our eyes throughout the duration of musical worship and gives these words of hope. If you hang in there, you will eventually become oblivious to others around you and will be free to worship from your heart. Uh, Now again, that's a very common way of thinking about worshiping God. And I imagine the intent of those who say things like this is a sincere and noble one. I'm sure that people genuinely want to promote an undistracted worship of Jesus Christ. And that is certainly a good and commendable thing. But I need to say, I have a few questions about this way of thinking. Such as, is blocking out other believers the way that we become more absorbed with Jesus? Uh, Is my goal in singing to make sure that no one else in the room overhears me, right? Overhear because I'm talking exclusively to God, right? And so anything you hear, well, you're just overhearing. Is becoming oblivious to other people an essential part of worshiping God freely? And if so, uh, can I try that around the home? You know, hey, dad, hey, dad, I'm sorry, I'm worshiping God freely, which means I am oblivious to you. Uh, There are at least two major problems with this popular way of thinking about worship. The first is the issue of how we come to set our attention on God. Yes, we want to focus our attention on the glorious God we praise, but Scripture tells us that one of the primary means that the Lord uses to help us focus on Him and His truth, one of the primary means He uses is the people of God with whom we gather. You, You block them out, you become oblivious to them, You are blocking out and ignoring a primary means God has put in your life to remind you of the truth of the gospel and to set your affections on Jesus Christ. I need others, desperately need others to help me set my attention on God. It is good for us to preach the gospel to ourselves. We speak often of that. It is even better to encourage preaching the gospel to each other. At times the message of Scripture is, speak these truths to yourself. Far more often the message of Scripture is, speak these truths to one another. My second problem with that paragraph I shared and with the way a good number of Christians think about musical worship has to do with the goal of our singing. Yes, we are to focus on God, 
but the scriptures teach not exclusively because we also must focus on and address one another in our singing. Brian Chappell in Christ-Centered Worship uh, says this, making God the exclusive goal of worship sounds very reverent, but actually fails to respect scripture's own gospel priorities. God expects us not only to praise his name, but also to teach and admonish and encourage one another in worship. In other words, there is not only a vertical component to worship, there is a horizontal aspect as well. I want to share with you on the theme of edification in the church. Uh, with application to, to musical worship, edification. Edification refers to being spiritually strengthened and built up and encouraged, and it is a foundational goal in our gathering and in our worship. Uh, I am in, personally, a unique season in life where I have been more aware than ever of my own need to be edified through the Sunday gathering. Some of you know that this last summer, my then two-year-old daughter, Agatha, we call her Aggie, was diagnosed with cancer. And we're in the middle of this lengthy stretch of chemotherapy, and between the hospital time and irregular sleep and working to alleviate our little girl's suffering each day, uh, we have found ourselves more exhausted than ever. And I thank God for his presence and for his care. I thank God for the gift of the church family. Uh, I thank God for the God of wow. You heard that last night. Uh, that's Aggie's favorite song. Uh, she'll say she has neuropathy sometimes in her hands and feet. It's hurt and her fingers are hurt. She says, fingers hurt. How about God of wow? You know, and just every time she's coming out of the, the, uh, the tub, how about God of wow? So she's just, the two things I say most into my phone are directions home because I never know where I am and play God of wow because Aggie is constantly <laughs> requesting it. I also thank God for plurality uh, in leadership and for team ministry, which has enabled me to step back when needed. Uh, there have been a good number of Sundays recently where I have requested no public responsibilities uh, so that I can be refreshed and so that I can focus on experiencing the mutual edification and the soul strengthening that comes when God's people gather. There was a Sunday a few months ago, I was coming off of a stretch of having spent a few days and nights in the hospital and that Sunday swapped off with my wife and I come into church. It was one of those Sunday mornings where I am eagerly anticipating encountering God and just to see the saints, uh, to, to greet them and to sit under the word and to join my voice to their praises did my soul such good. And Joseph led us in singing the hymn that morning, How Firm a Foundation. I didn't even demand that he do it. I didn't pull my senior pastor ranking. Uh, <laughs> the power coveted by every worship leader, you know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm pretty sure that he did it just for me. Uh, when through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. 
This is what happens when the people of God gather, and you have these experiences as well, how deeply we are edified when we gather together with the saints. I am understanding more clearly these days what Martin Luther meant when he said, quote, at home in my house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. Oh, uh, yes, it does. What is that fire breaking its way through? It is the warm fires of edification that come through the gathering and the praises of the people of God. These verses that we read in 1 Thessalonians 4 were written because there were apparently a few Christians who had died in the church in Thessalonica. Uh, this was just a few months after the church had existed. And now grief is weighing heavily on this young church. And they're left with these weighty questions. The question of what hope and comfort we have uh, in the face of the inevitable sorrows and trials that face us in life. Ultimately, the great question is what hope do we have in the face of death? And some of you can relate today to this fight for hope in your present circumstances, in your present losses, in your present conflicts. And God is drawing near to us to encourage and to strengthen our own hearts by his word of truth and to equip us to be instruments in his hands, extending his encouragement and his comfort to others. Everything is headed toward verse 18 of the text. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Um, so the first observation from this passage, this is the first of three points, is this. All Christians are in need of edification. The Christians in Thessalonica are not the only ones who know grief and who need encouragement. Um, I never want to paint a bleak and joyless view of the Christian life, and yet we must not forget the obvious truth that life involves suffering and loss and trials of many kinds. We are a weak people. We are fighting for hope, and we gather as the people of God in need of comfort and encouragement and strength. John Bunyan puts it so perfectly in Pilgrim's Progress, his uh, famous allegory of the Christian life. And what Bunyan saw so clearly, and what he knew from his own experience as well, is that the road we travel in the Christian life makes for a difficult and dangerous journey. Uh, there are many Christians who at times find themselves in the swamp of despond, so burdened that we cannot discern God's truth, that we cannot discern God's promises. There are many Christians on that hill of difficulty, so weary that we feel we can't go on, and what lies ahead seems to be more than we can bear. There are many Christians in the, the valley of humility, fighting that giant Apollyon. That's where Satan tempts us. He reminds us of our guilt. Discontent came to Christian in that valley to tell him that, that the place of humility has no honor. And shame also comes and tempts him as he's in the valley of humility. And at the end of that valley, there was the valley of the shadow of death, a very dark and solitary place where Christian feels as though he is entirely alone. Also, there are many Christians who are suffering in Vanity Fair, and the world stands opposed to them and mistreats them. There are many Christians who find themselves in Doubting Castle, 
facing giant despair, so depressed that the darkness often hangs over them and it does not lift. And giant despair, we're told, beats his prisoners without mercy. Uh, it's exactly what despair does, beats without mercy. Uh, there are many Christians who are like the man called little faith, we're told, so weak that we have neither power to fight nor fly. Little faith is a sincere man, but he's beat up by three brothers. Their names were faint heart, mistrust, and guilt. And Christian says that those same three villains attacked him. The thing to remember is that this is a picture of the Christian life. Set your expectations accordingly. That's the biblical teaching, and we know it to be true from our own experience as well. And when we gather as a church on Sunday morning, or when we gather in small groups or wherever else, this is what we always need to keep in mind. There are among those gathered many who are climbing the hill of difficulty. Others are in the swamp of despond. Others are in Doubting Castle. Others are in the valley of the shadow of death. All Christians, in one way or another, are in need of edification. And this influences what we do in musical worship in a number of ways. Do you have any songs that give expression to grief? We just sang a number of them this morning, during this time together. Uh, songs of lament, cries of pain and sorrow and brokenness. Many of the Psalms of Scripture will help us here. I remember first reading an article by Carl Truman uh, that I found quite helpful. It was titled, uh, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? Chipper title uh, and an insightful article. Uh, having a liturgy, having an order of service that includes confession and brokenness uh, will also help wonderfully in this. Uh, and I would encourage you to be aware of the unique struggles of the people you serve. Um, I'm always happy to serve and speak in any context, but it is always my preference and my greatest joy to speak among and to serve among and to greet uh, the people I know uh, and to keep their difficulties and their trials in mind in the act of serving. There's a tendency at times to separate our, our pastoral leadership, our preaching, our worship leading, our song selection, our prayers from those we serve. Uh, Mike Cosper says worship leaders are servants given a pastoral task. That's a really good brief summary and description. If you're a worship leader, you're a servant given a pastoral task, and that means your priorities are to study the Word of God and to serve the flock. It is part of a worship leader uh, to be a minister of comfort. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak. It is, it is pastors and worship leaders uh, to whom God comes and says, comfort, comfort my people. And then we stand in the presence of God's people and say, come weary saints, tired and weak, hide away in the love of Jesus. Last week in our own church here at Covenant Fellowship, uh, the oldest member of our church passed away, Mary Spar, so dearly loved. Um, in March, she turned 96 years old. And she has children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren in the church. And so Sunday was a pastoral moment for us as a church. And Joseph skillfully led us through uh, that moment as a church family, knowing that there are many who are 
sorrowful yet always rejoicing in the midst of this loss. Our service of the church will always be helped by considering the circumstances of those we serve. It, it will help you to guard against a performance mentality. You get, you know, as a preacher, you get so locked in, what's the perfect structure here? Or worship leader, what's the, the perfect, you know, song set here? Keep in mind the needs and the situations of those you are serving, and it will promote, doing that will promote the priority of edification. The second point that we have here is theological truth is the source of edification. Okay, so first, we're all in need of edification. That point is somewhat obvious. Theological truth is the source of edification. Look at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We don't want you to be uninformed. Being uninformed, bad. <laughs> being informed, good. The basic assumption of that verse is that being informed, knowing the truth, makes all the difference in how we process trials. Christians must not be uninformed. We need to be informed, we need information, we need teaching and theology and truth from God if we are to face the hardships of life and even death itself as we ought. And that is why Paul states the truth of God's word here with absolute authority. Verse 14, we believe. Not, not maybe, not perhaps, not well, have you considered it might be the case. We believe. Verse 15, this we declare to you. And then verse 18 says, it is these words, uh, theological words of truth, obviously communicated with the right heart and at the right time. It is these words of truth that will encourage and sustain and edify and give hope. This text is a perfect example of how sound doctrine is to function in our lives and in our gatherings. Friends, we need theology. You need theology in your life and in your head and in your heart. But the goal of studying theology is not to win debates or to feel good about ourselves or to impress others. Theology reveals Christ, who is himself the source of our edification. And theology matters because it is practical, because it makes all the difference in how we live, all the difference in the midst of our present sorrows and our present fears. There's a, uh, a Peanuts comic strip, Charlie Brown, that captures this perfectly. You might be familiar with it. Lucy and Linus are having a conversation. Lucy sits looking out the window, and it is pouring outside. And she says to Linus, boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? And Linus, uh, very calmly and matter-of-factly, says, it will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that it would never happen again, and the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And then Lucy, quite relieved by this, says, you've taken a great deal off my mind. <laughs> and then Linus, then Linus says this, sound theology has a way of doing that. 
Yes, it does. Sound theology has a way of helping us, of taking a great deal off of our minds. Theology matters because it makes a difference in how we live, in how we think, in how we grieve. And so many of the problems that we face in life can be traced back to what is lacking in our knowledge. A lack of clarity in our understanding of the truth. We do not want you to be uninformed. And so we're given truth from God in these verses, truths that are intended to make a difference in our outlook. In this case, especially when Christians die. We do not want you to be uninformed. Worship leaders, like pastors, are those who do not want the church to be uninformed regarding theological truth. And choosing worship songs well requires uh, great theological acumen. Uh, it's not enough to know what songs people will like. It's not enough to know what songs they will respond to emotionally. The music is subordinate to the theological truths our songs contain. And this is something that uh, Bob, whenever I say Bob in a worship sermon, I'll say Bob Coughlin, especially when he's right here. So if I say Bob in reference to worship, it's Bob Coughlin, the Bob who talks about worship all the time. One of the things I love that Bob says, he says, singing is meant to be an educational event. Yes. Give them rich theology. Give them the truth of God's word. And so... Here's, a, here's the question, because we've got to look at this text some. What are these great theological truths that give the hope that is mentioned in verse 13 and the encouragement that is mentioned in verse 18? What are these truths? I share them with you now with great joy in my heart, praying that they will fall on your ears uh, with faith and will Transfer hope in God in your present circumstances. To all who know grief and loss, to all who need comfort, come and hear the gracious word of the Lord. Truths unchanged from the dawn of time. Here it is. We have a Savior who has conquered death for us. What if there is a grace that has come to save and to loose death's iron hold? Praise God, he has done it in Jesus Christ. Verse 14 gives us the foundation of our hope. It is the first reason that we should not grieve as those who have no hope. Understand, grief is appropriate when we lose someone we love. But when, when Christians die, our grief is not the grief of despair. Is it a strong grief? Yes. Does it at times feel unbearable? Yes, but it's not a grief of hopelessness. It's not a grief of uncertainty. It's not the grief of confusion. And verse 14 explains why. Beginning with that word for. We don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe... That Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Look at that first part of it. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Our hope hinges entirely upon that belief. If Jesus never died and rose again, it would be appropriate for us to grieve as those who have no hope. You take Christ from us and we would have no hope in life. And we would have only fear in death. 
The central teaching of all of Scripture is found in these words. Jesus died and rose again. He died on the cross in our place. He took our sins upon himself. He and his great love bore the wrath of God that we deserve. And he rose from the dead so that we who trust in him would live with him and live for him and live from him forever to the praise of his glory. He died. He rose. And this is the message of first importance. And because he rose from death, we too shall rise through faith in him, united to Christ, victorious over sin and death. Verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise just as he rose. Uh, Death is a great enemy, but there is a comfort that surpasses knowledge to be found in those simple words. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Perhaps you have a father or mother who has recently passed away having trusted Christ and you now live with a feeling of emptiness and sorrow because you miss them so much. Or perhaps you've lost very young children and the grief is almost too much for you to bear. Or perhaps a friend is sick and may not have much time left. Friends, let us grieve, but let us not grieve as those who have no hope. We believe that Jesus has died and rose again. And this passage also makes clear the good news that Christians who die will participate fully in the Lord's return, which seems to be one of the particular questions or issues there in the church in Thessalonica. This is verses 15 through 17. Notice what Paul comforts them with. Uh, And this is where theology matters and functions in real life. What he comforts them with Uh, is not that those who have died are now in a better place. That's certainly true. It would be an appropriate thing to say. But look at the text. Uh, The Bible teaches us to place our greatest hope, not in what happens when we die or where we go when we die, but in the coming of Christ. God in Christ is coming again. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. And God wants us to derive comfort in knowing that all the Christians who have previously died will not miss out or be at any disadvantage whatsoever on that day. When the dignitary arrives, when the king comes in power, the trumpet will sound, the red carpet will be rolled out, and we all together will welcome Christ in the sky, and the grand procession will occur. That's what we have described here, this apocalyptic language calling attention to the significance of the event. The concern here is not to give all the details about what will take place, but to show the significance of this event, that we might set our hope fully on the revelation of Christ in his coming. His return will be personal. It will be loud. It will be visible. It will be public. It will be glorious. And that's not all. We're also told that when Christ returns, we will be with him forever. We'll be with him forever. The moment that Jesus comes, Christians who are living and Christians who have died will immediately be brought into eternal fellowship with Christ as heaven and earth are joined together and all things are made new. That's what's signified in these words in verse 17. And so we will always be with the Lord. Be clear on the nature of your ultimate hope. 
Know the nature of your ultimate hope. What is it? I'm afraid too many would answer that question as Maria Shriver did in her popular children's book, What's Heaven? Uh, if you're not familiar with it, good. Uh, <laughs> She's, uh, Maria Shriver is former first lady of California, formerly married, I believe, to Arnold Schwarzenegger, member of the Kennedy family. The book, as you might expect, lots of pictures, big fluffy clouds, written on each page is a single sentence describing heaven. Quote, heaven is somewhere you believe in. It's a beautiful place where you can sit on soft clouds and talk to other people who are there. If you're good throughout your life, then you get to go to heaven. That's where we... Uh, when your life is finished here on earth, God sends angels down to take you up to heaven to be with him. And I read that. That sums up what thousands and thousands of people in our day are believing and teaching to their children. And our songs need to do better than that. We, we declare the blessed hope that Titus 2.13 talks about. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.54 says that when Christ comes again, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And Revelation 21, beginning in verse 3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, every tear from your eyes wiped away, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's your hope in Christ. I'm reminded in thinking about Revelation 21, a few months ago, I visited my, my grandma, my nana, uh, whose health has rapidly declined. She doesn't have much time left. I was attempting to read Revelation 21 to her, but I was overcome with emotion and needed to pause and then can't see the page through tears. Uh, there was a point in life where she stopped knowing our names, uh, but she still knew the hymns and went on singing the hymns that she has spent her life singing. And at our last family gathering with dozens of great-grandchildren watching, my nan and pop-up sang a few of those hymns, the truths that give us power, that give us hope. Encourage one another with these words through the word of truth. That's how we are edified. Uh, so here's one application. Remember, there is an edification that excellence alone cannot bring. Uh, it's good to strive for excellence. God commends musical skill. We always want to improve. But excellence must always be the servant of edification. And keep this in mind as well. Mature Christians are easily edified. The smallest amount of truth, however imperfectly expressed or poorly sung, gives them great joy. And so, if you do not have the skill or excellence in gifting that you may desire, and there are ways that you are aware of your weakness, whether it's in music or in some particular skill or in public gifting, in leadership, in planning, in arrangements, in time management, whatever... You should receive the priority, the biblical priority of edification as very good news because God will use you. Another thing Bob said in one of his books, the question is not, do you have a voice? Because that's the question I say, ah, you know, no, I don't. The question he says is not, do you have a voice? It's, do you have a song? Yes, God has given you a song. 
He has placed his song of truth in you. And therefore, your leadership and your service will be used by God to minister and to edify many. This was uh, just last week. I was going to bed late on a Saturday night. I was thinking about preaching the next day. Um, so just we're in bed, lights are out. I say to Megan, this is not a great sermon. And, uh, you know, some say you should in that moment as you're falling asleep, cast your cares upon the Lord when you crawl into bed. Uh, I prefer to complain and grovel in self-pity, <laughs> clearly. And so, so I said, this is not a great sermon. And Megan immediately said, fortunately for you, God loves to use not great things. And I said, uh, you know, in my mind, there's a sort of a dual response. The, the, probably the first and louder response is, uh, Megan, apparently you didn't realize that the goal of my whining is for you to affirm my greatness. Uh, but in fact, she did something far better and she spoke words of truth. Take that with you. Uh, God loves to use not great things. He delights to use our weakness to edify others with his truth. I'd say, in fact, one of the few weaknesses that God generally does not use is impoverished theology. Okay, so if you're realizing that that's a weakness, you have no standing upon the truth of God's word, well, you've gutted yourself of the source of the edification of God's people because biblical truth is that source of edification. And that is why great attention must be given to our own theological development uh, and biblical studies. Uh, it's why books are being given out and the practice of study and reading is being commended, get into the commentaries. And it's why great care as well must be taken in selecting our songs. Rich biblical content is the source of our edification. Our third and final heading here, now the church is God's context for edification. In, in verse 18, oh, and it's so magnificent the way this passage ends. Verse 18, after we receive this glorious, soul-strengthening, hope-giving declaration of the truth, then there's this, encourage one another with these words. Not just receive encouragement from this, but instead, encourage one another. And in fact, the beginning of chapter 5 has a similar section and then ends. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Edify one another just as you are doing. So all of this teaching and theology has the mutual edification and the relational strengthening and the upbuilding of the church in view. Uh, we have the content. We are not uninformed. God has given us these great gospel truths. And so what do we do now? We speak them to each other. And we counsel one another with this truth. And we write these truths to each other. And we sing them to one another. To strengthen and to encourage one another in Christ. Paul uh, goes on, in fact, in this letter toward the end of the letter, uh, in chapter 5, verse 27, uh, to encourage this, in fact, to command this letter to be read, all of its rich, edifying truth. He commands it to be read aloud in the church. Uh, why? Because the church is God's context for edification. 
And it's worth noticing, this is in this one another, uh, those who do the edifying and encouraging are not restricted to leaders. So too often, you know, you go to church and you think, who's doing the edifying? That person up there. But scripture presents something different. One another has in view the entire church. And we edify one another when we gather. As you greet one another, Romans 16, 16, as you welcome one another in Christ, as Christ has welcomed you, Romans 15, 7, as you serve one another, Galatians 5, 13, as you speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5, 19, as you teach and admonish one another, Colossians 3, 16, as you rejoice with those who rejoice, as you weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. In all of this, we are edifying each other in the fellowship that God has given us. And so, brothers and sisters, as you have opportunity, remind others of these truths. Encourage and comfort one another with this hope of Christ. Tell each other again and again the story of grace that we need to hear. This edification is the reason that we gather. Hebrews 10 Verses 24 and 25 say, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. Uh, if you are not meeting together, you're not going to be able to encourage one another. And so we gather. And... This application needs to be made and emphasized in this setting. One of the ways God intends for us to encourage one another is through singing the truth. Uh, there should be times that we address one another directly through song. So yes, there is that vertical aspect to our singing. Songs of praise provide this wonderful opportunity for us to express who God is and what God has done and to address this to him. But we are edifying each other as we sing and we are addressing one another as well. And that's this horizontal aspect of singing. Singing is intended to be a means of teaching and encouraging one another. And so Colossians 3.16 is wonderful in this regard. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And in fact, you see this, read through the psalms and note this horizontal element of, of the singing where the people of God are being addressed. Psalm 47, 1, clap your hands, all peoples. Psalm 30, verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. So you read this, who is the you? You read this in Psalms and you see all of the you's don't always direct to God. There are times that the you is directed to the people of God. And so if the you in your singing is always addressing God and never other people, the function of your worship is not as broad as God intends it to be. And this is why we sing songs. I mentioned one earlier, how firm a foundation. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. You're talking to the saints of God. 
Saints, how firm a foundation is laid for you, saints, in God's excellent word. I need that. My soul needs to have the saints of God reminding me of that firm foundation of his word, speaking God's truth to me. We're simply following the command of God in verse 18 to encourage one another with these words. And oh, how often it has been the case that our souls have been blessed, that the living God has met powerfully with us, that we have been so richly edified as we have received the truth of God from the people of God. We can, and I encourage you to do this. Think back on your life, your life and recall the times that you've been built up and sustained by the songs of the redeemed. We have grieved, but we have not grieved as those who have no hope. We have been edified, and God has used us to edify others. Together, God has given us songs of praise so that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And when he returns, we will be with him forever. Oh, brothers and sisters, may your heart be encouraged today. And may you be used by God to greatly encourage others in these truths, in your leadership, in your singing, in your conversations. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17 says this, and I leave you with these words. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen, and God bless you.